0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Mark chapter 15. And again, we're going to be reading, beginning in verse 33. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait By his life, death, and resurrection, our Savior has conquered our enemies. And by his spirit, he has granted us to share in the victory. So Easter Sunday, here in America, is a national holiday. Everyone, it seems, is familiar with Easter. In fact, Easter is one of those two times of year that people who don't normally show up at church will actually come to church, except this year everybody's at home, because we we have to be. But Easter has been and still is an important part of our cultural phenomena in this country. In fact, it is the reason why we have spring break for for school. School districts historically have taken time off for the Easter holiday like they do for, for Christmas. Right? And in fact, this time of year used to be called Easter break instead of spring break, which means culturally we still, even now, have a sense of what Easter is. Even those who are not Christians and those who are not part of the church like still have a sense of what Easter is. And in, in our culture, we understand that Christmas is about the birth of Christ. And we understand that Easter is about the resurrection of Christ. You ask basically anybody on the street who's an American or in Western society, they can tell you that. They might not believe that, but they can tell you that. And, and to make things more festive, this holiday is connected to springtime. right? It's a time of year that we see around us all the new life. Everything turns green. Everything is, is colorful. Even the desert right now is painted with shades of green and hues of yellow. A visible image of new life to a, to a typically brown, arid region. And so we instinctively know to celebrate. That's why right there is the food. That's why there's all the candy. I mean, just think about all the sheer volumes of candy that will be given and consumed today. I mean, if you're at home with your kids, I mean, if you need any more reason for them to be amped up, it's going to be Easter candy. Everything from hollow chocolate bunnies to jelly beans to Cadbury eggs. And then there is the gathering together of families, or there used to be. And then there's all the fun activities that have been developed over time, like decorating eggs and, and Easter egg hunts, again, that used to be. But culturally, we understand that there's a connection to the resurrection. And this goes for non-Christians and Christians alike. We know that Easter is about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In fact, if, especially as Christians, if you were to ask Christians, what Easter is about, they would say, Jesus coming back from the dead. It's about Jesus being risen from the grave. I mean, my Facebook feed is flooded with images of empty tombs and crosses and expressions like, he is risen indeed. Death has died. Death has no hold on him. Christ has risen. Which is absolutely true. All of it. But what happens when we press the issue? What happens when you ask the question, why is that important? Why is that important that Jesus rose from the dead? If you ask that question, you'll find a number of professing believers in Christ. They will struggle at least a little bit how to answer that question. They will struggle to ar- articulate you know, why the resurrection is important. Now, most Christians will make the connection and they will say it's important because Jesus died for our sins which is absolutely true. But what happens then if you press them even further than that? What happens when you ask them, what does that mean? What is accomplished by him dying for our sins? What is accomplished by Jesus dying and then being resurrected? What did that actually do? You ask that question, you'll find even more Christians will struggle to answer that. They have not really thought about that. And then those who do can who can answer that question, you'll get a wide range of answers to that. They'll say, well, it, it it took away our sin. It gives us eternal life. It gives us freedom from the law. It gives us freedom from sin. Jesus conquered sin in the grave. It's, you know, all that was accomplished. And, under, and again, that is true and important. But what we need to see is these things are actually the byproduct of what actually was accomplished these things are the benefits of what happened on the cross they are the outworkings the cleansing of our sin and eternal life are the positive consequences of what actually took place on the cross they are the results of what actually happened What we need to understand is what was accomplished through the death of Christ on the cross and then ultimately through the resurrection is much more foundational than these things. These truths here are important. As important as they are, are all rooted in what actually was accomplished by the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's what I want to share with you today. That's what I want to point you to today. So again, turn with me again to Mark chapter 15, but I want you to look at verses 37 and 38. And it reads, And Jesus uttered a a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And I'm going to camp out there today, because there's two things that we need to see in this text here. First, it says, Jesus cried a loud cry and breathed his last what was his loud cry was it just a scream was it was it just gibberish was it him just you know making a guttural sound or was it something else well, one of the benefits for us having multiple gospels and multiple eyewitness testimonies of the event that happens is that we have different perspectives. And John actually tells us in, in John chapter 19, verse 30, he tells us what Jesus actually was crying about. It says, Jesus on the cross said, It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died. Jesus cried the cry that he cried out loud near the end of his life was the declaration that it was finished then he died and then it says in verse 38 the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom and this is a detail that we don't want to miss. This is a detail I know for me in my own early Christian life. It was one of those ones. I read it and go, okay, moving on to the resurrection. Right? This is a detail that we need to really think about. Right? Jesus cries from the cross. A loud voice. It is finished. Then he dies. And in that very moment, right, the curtain in the temple that's several stories high, that's four inches thick. He's supernaturally torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top where a group of men can tear it. It was torn from the top to the bottom. Brothers and sisters, this is what was accomplished on the cross. This is the foundation of all of those other benefits. Christ declares his work is done, he dies, and the veil in the temple was torn. Now you might say, well, okay, cool, I know that. You just said that. I mean, I read it right there in the text. It's right there, right? In fact, I remember when we sing Jesus Messiah, Jesus Messiah says, you know, that song says, the veil is torn. Like, I know, I heard that. So what? Well, the problem is that we live 2,000 years after the fact, and we live in a completely different culture than Jesus. What we need to do is we need, in order for us to fully understand what this, what this curtain being torn means, we need to see this event with first century Jewish eyes. You see, the veil and the temple itself was an important symbol. It was a symbol of God's grace. The temple was a visible symbol of God's presence with sinful men. That God, in his grace and in his mercy, chose out of his own will a particular people for himself. And it wasn't like they deserved it. It wasn't like that they earned it. He chose them because he wanted to. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. God, in his grace, by his own counsel of his own will, decided to choose for himself a people. God chose to love these people, to demonstrate his love to them, to be compassionate towards them, a people that he, on his own, decided to rescue out of bondage from Egypt. In fact, he sent ten plagues to, to the Egyptians, demonstrating his awesome power and his terrible wrath, compelling, finally, Pharaoh in his hardened heart to let the people of Israel go. And if you remember the very last plague, right, it was especially a horrific plague because the angel of death, the destroyer, came into Egypt and he killed every firstborn of every family except for the Israelites. He spared them. Why? Why? Because God had commanded them and a prophetic sign for what was to come later to kill by their own hands the lamb and take the blood and put it on the frames of their doors. And when the destroyer would come by, he would pass. He would pass their house. God graciously spared the Israelites that night. That is why they celebrate to this very day the festival of Passover. It's a symbol of Of God's grace. And then God, after all that, delivered the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. And I want you to understand, if that is all that God had done for these people, that would have been enough to say, I am gracious, I am long-suffering, and I love you. That by itself is a mind-blowing act of grace and mercy on the behalf of God towards these people. But God still did even more than that. God led them out of captivity. And then in one of the most incredible displays of love, he made a point to dwell with his people. You see, he didn't just save them. He made a point to be near them. He instructed them to build the Ark of the Covenant. He instructed them to build the tabernacle. And then ultimately, once they settled into Israel, the temple, which replaced the tabernacle. And what we need to understand is the tabernacle and the temple were visible symbols of God's presence with his people. You need to understand this. The tabernacle in the wilderness and then finally the permanent temple in Jerusalem were not just places of worship. They weren't just places for people to gather. They were symbols of God's presence with his people. And I say symbol, but actually during the time in the wilderness, God's presence was actually visible. It says in Numbers chapter 9, verse 15, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, a cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the, of the testimony. And in, at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. God visibly was with his people. They could see that he was near. And likewise, with the first temple in Jerusalem, God's Shekinah glory was in the temple. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 says, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. His presence was visibly with his people, and it was like this for a very long time. But just before the Babylonian exile." because of Israel's sin and unfaithfulness to God. Ultimately, God's visible presence left the temple, as we read in Ezekiel. And then ultimately, the temple was destroyed. And the exile away from the land and the destruction of the temple was was a catastrophic loss to the Israelites because their sense of God being with them was lost while well, they were exiled. Their exile was more than just a physical exile for them. But Israel then ultimately was allowed to return back to their land. And what do they do? They rebuilt the temple. And, and even though God's supernatural presence, even though his Shekinah glory never came back to the temple, the temple still represented and stood as a symbol of God's people with, God's presence with his people. That's why It's important. And I want you to understand, here's why that fact is important. Even though the temple is a sign of God's gracious gracious presence near his people, and that God dwelt among his people, the temple itself is set as a reminder that you can only get so close to God. Even though it was a reminder that that God was present with his people, the temple itself was a reminder you can only get so close to God. It stood as a symbol of the fact that there is a barrier between God and man. That there is something in the way. In fact... The only people allowed inside the temple were the priests who were consecrated for the duty that they had to do inside of the temple. Everyone else had to stay outside. And it depended on who you were, how close you could even get to the temple. If you were a Gentile, you were the furthest people away. If you were a female uh, Israelite, you could be a little bit closer. Then if you were a male Jew, you could be even closer than that. But you couldn't come inside the temple. And even the temple itself was divided into two rooms. You had the holy place where you had the lampstand and, and where the priests brought in the bread of the presence and they burnt uh, incense on the, the altar of incense. But then there was a smaller room, the most holy place. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was situated and rested. And, and this place was the place of God's presence. In fact, on top of the Ark of the Covenant is what is called the Mercy Seat. It is is God's symbolic throne here on the earth. And what divided these two rooms from each other is a massive, several-story high, four-inch-thick curtain. This curtain served as a barrier not only between the rooms, but it served as a visible reminder of the barrier between God and man because no one was ever allowed into the most holy place under any circumstance except one time of year the high priest after his ritual purifications and preparations was allowed to go in one time to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to make atonement that year for the Israelites on the day of atonement that was that was it No one was allowed in. And to enter into the most holy place was to to be death. To minister inappropriately on the day of atonement meant death. In fact, according to tradition, when the high priest went in to the most holy place to make atonement, they had a rope tied to him just in case he offended God and God killed him. They could then drag his body out without going in there because no one was going to go in there to retrieve him. You see, the temple itself and the curtain served as a reminder that there's still something between God and man. Even even though God was near, there was still this barrier. Mankind cannot stand in the presence of God himself. The veil, the curtain is a reminder of the tragedy of the fall. Which then takes us all the way back to Genesis. Genesis. When God created the world and he created mankind, everything was perfect. Everything was as as it should be. There was no barrier between man and God at all. Mankind and and God existed together. God was present with them in a way that we can't even possibly imagine right now. But then Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin entered the world. And when that happened, they were cast out of God's life-giving presence, and they were cast out of the garden. And if you remember, God placed a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword, at the entrance of the garden to keep mankind out. And can you guess what the image is? It's embroidered on on the veil in the tabernacle. Cherubim. A reminder that the entrance is blocked. And when you get inside of the most holy place, what's standing there on each side of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim, two cherubim guarding the way. And what's on the mercy seat itself where God is seated, two more cherubim. A symbol that the way between mankind and God is closed off. It is blocked. The Ark of the Covenant And the temple itself and the veil all point to the same thing. Because of of sin, a chasm has been placed between God and man by God himself that is so great that there's nothing that any man can do to overcome it on his own. He cannot work hard enough for it. He cannot be religious enough for it. He cannot be sincere enough. He can do nothing to earn his way back into favor with God. Why? Why? Because of the destructive nature of sin itself. Sin entered the world and infected everything and everyone. You see, God is holy. He cannot abide with sinful man. But more than that, along with sin came death. Death and destruction followed on the heels of sin. The bottom line truth is that we've all have to come face to face with is that all of us are dying right now. All of us. The time that you have on this earth at this moment is ticking away. And someday, sooner or later, you will die. Why? Because of the effects of sin. No one escapes that. Death is the inevitable consequence of sin. Sin kills our body. But more than that, it also kills our minds. It poisons our thoughts. It pollutes our thinking. It also destroys our bodies, but it destroys everything else, too. Sin destroys entire families. We have seen this. It destroys friendships. It destroys communities. It even destroys whole nations. Our nation stands on the brink of an an economic collapse like no one's ever seen before. Cancer, depression, bigotry, racism, war, famine, COVID-19. Uncertainty, despair, all of these are consequences, the byproducts of that sin that separates us from God. And the temple itself, the veil that stood there, is a reminder of that sin. that The way to God is closed. But even with God being so gracious... And even him condescending to choose his people and giving them the law and showing them mercy and blessing them and creating a temple that inspired hope for these Jewish people. Even with all that, the veil stood as a symbol, a barrier between God and man. And it was a warning of the awful and terrible truth that those who come into the presence of the living God in their sin will experience the wrath and the justice of God. But then... God in his even more unimaginable grace, according to the plan that he had before the foundation of the world, sent his son into the world. God the son came into the world born of a virgin and he lived the perfect righteous life that God requires out of someone to be able to live in his presence, a life that you can't live. A life that no man under the curse of sin can live. And not only that, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. All the law that God gave to his people to demonstrate what was required to be in his presence. The law that couldn't save them, but only point out to the fact that they, they had fallen short. Right? Christ kept the law, fulfilled the law that we couldn't. Christ the man earned by his life the righteous standing before God that is required to be in his presence, required but impossible for anyone else to attain. Christ the man earned that righteousness and was able to then stand in the very presence of God, the Father, on our behalf. He was able to go into the most holy place and be our perfect high priest like no one in history. And he made atonement for our sins forever, permanently. The atonement didn't have to be repeated again and again, year after year. He perfectly atoned for all of our sins once and for all. That is why on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished because the atonement for our sins had been accomplished. Christ willingly went to the cross taking upon himself our sins and he shed his own blood permanent, to, to permanently and perfectly atone for our sin. And on the cross he endured in our place the wrath of God that we deserve. God the Father then poured out his fury and his anger on Christ the Son. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ took the cup of God's wrath, the full cup of God's wrath, and he drank down every last drop for us. That's why he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. And then in that moment, he died and then Supernaturally, this curtain, this enormous symbol of the barrier between God and man is torn in two. And not from the bottom where man can touch it and rip it, but from, from the top to the bottom demonstrating that it is God himself who opened the way. And when the veil was torn, the barrier between the holy place and the most holy place was removed, and the barrier between God and man was finally Was finally gone. Christ perfectly atoned for our sin so that we can be reconciled back into the presence of God. That is what was accomplished on the cross. We have been reconciled back to God, and not just as subjects that He has conquered and subjects that He just tolerates. We've been reconciled back to Him as His own family, as His children we were adopted by faith in Christ in the family of God. In fact, John tells us he goes all who did not rec- to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? children of God. Who were born not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. We have been reconciled like family back to God. And that and and and, and, and where there was a time If you think about this, when there was a time where no one was allowed in to approach the throne of God, except for the day of atonement, we now can come boldly before the throne of grace with no fear of wrath and the judgment of God. Hebrews chapter four says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us Hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That is what Christ accomplished on the cross Jesus, the Lamb of God, removed the gulf that separates us from the relationship with God that we were created for. Jesus died to open the way. Now, with that understanding of what was accomplished on the cross, we can now understand what was accomplished by the resurrection. Because the resurrection stands as proof of the promise. You see, Christ's resurrection first of all, is the absolute proof that Jesus is exactly what he claimed to be. And make no mistake, Jesus claimed to be the king, not just your best friend. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the son of the living God. He claimed to be Yahweh, God himself. And his resurrection from the dead is irrefutable, historical proof of that. It is also proof that the barrier, excuse me, is the proof that the barrier between God and man is finally gone forever. For those who have faith in Christ, the barrier has been permanently destroyed. Nothing then, nothing then can separate us from God any longer. As Paul tells us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection is proof positive that the barrier between us and God is gone. It is also proof that sin and death has been conquered. Sin and death have been defeated We sing about that, but it's the truth. The grave has no power over Christ, and one day it will have no power over us. Revelation 21 verse 4 promises this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The resurrection is proof that death has been conquered And the resurrection is absolute, irrefutable, historical proof that Jesus can do all that he has promised to do. And what has he promised to do? He has promised to save us from our sin and the wrath of God. He has promised to prepare a place for us. He has promised to come back for us and to take us home to be with him. He has promised to wipe away our tears. He has promised to give us rest. He has promised to always be with us forever and to never leave us or forsake us. The resurrection is irrefutable proof that God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering and he is sovereign and trustworthy and compassionate. That's what the resurrection accomplished. It is historically and irrefutably proof that God made a way for us to be reconciled back to him and that way is Jesus Christ as he said I am the way the truth and the life and nobody nobody comes to the father except by me on the cross Jesus made a resur- the way and the resurrection is proof that that way is open through Christ alone all who put their faith in him have the way so what about you? That you're listening today here on Easter Sunday. Have you come to Christ? Have you been in your own life reconciled back to God? Have you turned and put your faith in Christ alone? If not, then hear me. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Today is the day we celebrate that Christ paid it all and he removes the barrier. Between you and God, and you can be reconciled to Him. All you have to do is turn to Christ and be saved. Jesus said, Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your old life and and all of your self-righteousness and and all of your attempts to save yourself and put all your hope and trust in Christ alone. Repent of your sin. Repent of your superstition. Repent of your rule-keeping. Run to Jesus. Grab a hold of Him. Come to Him in faith. And He has promised that He will absolutely save you. He has promised as much. The resurrection is proof of thus, that promise. And if you are ready today to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're ready to have life and walk in the newness of life, if you were ready, then, then we're going to ask you to let us know right now by commenting right there on Facebook the words, I'm ready. If you're ready then tell us, because you can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. You can do so right now, and a great way for you to do that is is to pray. Now, please understand, there is no such thing as a sinner's prayer. There's nothing in the Bible that's called that, right? Prayer and praying a prayer doesn't save anyone. You were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You were saved and justified by your faith, right? Prayer doesn't do that. A formula prayer can't save you, but praying is a great way to express that you have right now saving faith. That you are experiencing that saving faith in Christ. And if you were there today, if you were ready to receive Christ, then please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I understand who I am, that I am a rebel, a sinner, who has been running from you and doing my own thing and living my own life and walking my own way, refusing to heed your call and submit to you. But Father, I hear the gospel today, and I realize that I can't make myself right with you, that the way is closed That there's nothing I can do in my own. I can't be good enough. I can't have my my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I can't be righteous enough on my own. It's impossible for me to save myself. It's impossible for me to make you love me. And so I realize I'm hopeless without you. Unless you do something for me, I can't do anything. But I recognize, I believe with all of my heart That you have made a way and that way is Jesus Christ. That he came into the world. He lived the life I couldn't live. He died on the cross to pay the penalty I couldn't pay. And on the cross, my sins were given to him. And his righteousness was credited to me through faith. And that he died in my place. And he was resurrected proving That he is who he claimed to be and what he did worked, Lord. And I am holding on to that hope and that promise. Your word says, if I will call upon your name, you will save me. That if I will believe in you, you will not put me to shame. If I will trust in what Christ has done and that alone, I will be reconciled, Lord. I do that today. I am begging you to save me, Lord. I need you. Send your Holy Spirit into me to confirm for me that I belong to you. And I thank you today, this Easter, that you have given me new life and you have saved me. And I pray you would help me to walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. And if today is the day for you that you have trusted in Christ, would you please reach out to us and let us know? You can call us at 760-762-5149 or you can email us at fbcboron at gmail.com or you can just message me right here on Facebook. I would love to connect with you and hear from you and to talk to you and give you some resources to help you to grow and begin to follow Christ. Don't let this opportunity today on Easter pass you by. Repent and believe the gospel. And for those of you who believe and who have repented and believed the gospel, then today we are going to celebrate the Lord's table. Today we are going to do what Jesus said. We are going to observe an ordinance that he said to do in remembrance of him. And so if you have your elements with you, would you please get your cups out and the juice ready? And then we will, and and the bread And then we will take those together. We'll begin with the bread itself. And the bread, thank you, is a symbol of a historical reality. This isn't just something that we do. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken. Jesus, the man, God incarnate, literally gave himself up for us. He was beaten to a pulp and he was hung on a cross where he endured the worst that mankind has to offer, but also the wrath of God in your place. The bread that you hold represents the real reality that God was not only present with you, but he made a way for you through Christ's sacrifice. Let us pray for the bread. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you so much that for some reason you've decided to choose us as a people and to bestow your grace and your mercy upon. And that your son came to do what we couldn't do because you decided to love wretched sinners like us. Father, we are humbled by that. We are broken by that. Help us, Lord, to take this in a way that pleases you and honors the sacrifice and the memory of Christ. We give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us take the bread. Next, we will take the cup. Thank you. And the cup, though it's just grape juice, is a visible, tangible symbol. We've been talking about symbols all day today. It's a visible, tangible symbol of the blood that Christ shed on your behalf. The Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless Passover lamb, gave his life and shed his blood so that you and I could go free. And as Jesus said in his own word, those whom the Son sets free, you are free indeed. As you take this today, be mindful of the fact that Jesus loved you enough to do this on your behalf. But then he was also resurrected back to new life as proof that his atoning sacrifice was more than enough. His grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray for the cup. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for what this represents. That is the blood of the new covenant. A covenant that has brought us into your family, not by our decision, but by your will that you, Lord God, have decided to love us in spite of us. And so, Father, as we take this, let us be mindful of the cost, the awful and terrible cost of what, it, what price was paid to set us free. And let us live in that this Easter and from here on forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us take the cup. And then we'll go ahead and invite the worship team Back up. And I want you to know this Easter Sunday, it has been the strangest thing to be here without you. And I want you to know when I say that I shed tears, I mean that. Our church family isn't just a bunch of people that we are associated with, you are vital to our lives. And so please, please know you are absolutely loved, you are prayed for, and you are deeply missed